Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. It's no secret at this point that 15-year-old Jennifer Jeffley was ultimately convicted for the murder of Catalina Palomino. In last week's episode, we tracked Jennifer's journey throughout the 36 hours immediately following the murder. We learned that she offered the police no less than four different stories, ultimately landing on a written statement that incriminated her. We know from Detective Wayman Allen's own testimony that Jennifer was changing her story to fit with details that he was providing to her throughout the seven-hour interrogation. Today, we're going to learn exactly what she said that led to her arrest. You're going to hear the full evolution from her initial verbal statement to police to both of her written statements. Jennifer's written statements were supposedly typed up by Detective Allen using her exact words. These written statements will be voiced by actress and voiceover artist, the very talented Naima Funk, who volunteered her time to help out with today's episode. This is Season 10, Episode 3, The Confession. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18 month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus terms apply. The best way to tackle the task of tracking all of Jennifer's statements is to move through the Houston PD incident report chronologically. In my FOIA production from HPD, the first time we see Jennifer's name mentioned is on a report written by an officer, Piekert. His report states that he was dispatched to the scene in regards to a DOA. This is what he says about Jennifer. Quote, Witness Jennifer Jeffley states that she stays above the complainant and that at approximately 9.20 a.m., she heard the complainant yell for help. The witness went to the complainant's door and started knocking on the complainant's door. The witness told officer that she then went to the office and got the manager. The apartment manager had the maintenance man jump the fence and open the door. 
the maintenance man found the complainant's sliding glass door open and the complainant by the front door. The apartment manager and the maintenance man, along with a black female from apartment 127, a nurse, went into the apartment. The black female from apartment 127 attempted CPR on the complainant, but the complainant was DOA. So according to Officer Peekert, Jennifer first told him that not only was she in Eva's apartment when Catalina started screaming, but also that she was the one that went to the manager's office to get help. Now, it's important to point out here that between all of these entries that we're going to be discussing today, there are several other witness statements taken from a multitude of witnesses that will paint a clearer picture of the case. But in order to try to not confuse this situation any more than it already is, I'm going to limit this episode to just what Jennifer said to police. In later episodes, we'll break down all of these other statements. However, I do want to point out just a few things that will become relevant when it comes to how Jennifer knows certain details about the crime scene. And again, we'll get to all these details later, but for now, this is the relevant information. In Eva's written statement to police on the day of the murder, she says that Jennifer left the apartment when she received a page and went to make a phone call. And then we have the story you've already heard about her hearing the screaming and going to get help. But she then says that when she returned, Jennifer was back and outside of the apartment with Katie and Youngster. And she says that Jennifer then told her that she had jumped the fence when she got there and went to check on the lady and that there was blood everywhere and that Catalina looked like she was dead. So that's thing one. That's just some relevant information that's going to come into play as we hear the rest of Jennifer's statements. And there's two other relevant items that come from statements from the maintenance man and the apartment manager. Both of them tell the police that after the front door was open, that both Eva and Jennifer followed the manager into the apartment. The manager says that she shooed them both out. And then the last thing is that the manager confirms something that you're going to hear Jennifer say in a later statement. Jennifer says that while she was inside, she told the manager that someone needs to cover up Catalina's body. The manager in her statement tells police that she does recall someone saying to cover Catalina up. Now, let's get back into Jennifer's statements. After giving the brief oral statement at the scene that I just read to you, Jennifer gave another oral statement, basically relaying the same information to Detective Swainson. She was then transported to a police station where Sergeant Boyd Smith formally interviewed her as a witness. Tracking this with last week's timeline, this is the interview that occurred on the night of the murder when Jackie went to the station to report Jennifer as a runaway. Jennifer didn't come home. And my sister went and asked, well, my sister went to wash her clothes. And she came back. She said, uh, there's something going on in the front of the building. And I'm like, really? She said, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not nosy. And then uh, she was doing her laundry. And she went back out and she came back and she said, I saw Jennifer. I said, where? She said she was standing up there with some police. So what I did, I got in my car, and I went to a police station. And I told them, I said, my daughter is a runaway, and I want you all to uh, pick her up and bring her in. And he said, do you know where she's at? And I'm like, she's talking to, something happened in my apartment complex, and she's talking to the police. He said, do you know where she's at? I said, yeah, she's standing out there talking to the police. He said, well, then she's not a runaway anymore. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She is a runaway. He said, no, if you know where she's at, she's not a runaway. So I was like, well, what does this mean? He said, just go get your kid. But as I 
was there talking to him. And I'm like, this is wrong. And she walked past me with an officer. And when she walked past me, I looked at her because I'm thinking, well, maybe they did bring her in because I told him she's a runaway. So I go and I said, uh, that's my daughter. And he said, the girl that just went in there with the officer? I said, yes. He said, oh, okay. I said, well, what did, they, what did he bring her in here for if you said she's not a runaway? He said, I'll find out for you. And I waited and I waited. It took a long time. It took a long time. So I went back up and I said, you were supposed to find out what happened, what's going on with my daughter. And he said, oh, they're questioning her. And that's when they told me. That's when that officer at the police station told me that she was a witness and they were taking a witness statement from her. The statement that you're about to hear is a little odd. So it was typed up by Sergeant Smith, but it's not a transcript. He was just typing out the statement as Jennifer was verbalizing it to him. It kind of reads like a transcript because he typed it in, I guess you would say her voice, but again, it's not a transcript. It's concise and it doesn't include any of his prompting of Jennifer or any questions that he asked along the way. So it just reads as though Jennifer is saying this all at once. So these are just her words during the interview, or her words that he chose to type into the statement. So here it is, Jennifer Jeffley's first written statement as typed by Boyd Smith and read by Naima Funk. My name is Jennifer Jeffley. I'm a black female and I'm 15 years old, um, having been born September 2nd, 1981. My home address is 10601 Sabo number 135, and my home telephone number is nothing. <laughs> um, I can be reached by calling 615-9585. That's my pager. <laughs> um, I don't have a driver's license number. Oh, my social security number is... Uh, I am attending Beverly Hills Intermediate, where I'm, uh, I'm in the eighth grade. I have been staying with a friend of mine for the last few days. Um, her name is Eva Mondragon. She lives at 10601 Sabo, number 58. I live with my mother, Jackie Jeffley, in apartment 135. But my mother told me if I couldn't live by her rules that I had to leave. My boyfriend, who I call Youngster, knows that I'm staying with Eva. I've only known Youngster for about two or three weeks. I know his first name is Pharrell. He told me his last name, but I can't remember what it is. Um, he's a black male, about 18 years old. I don't know where he lives, <laughs> but he has a pager. The number is 281-631-5988. <laughs> last night, I was at Eva's. Youngster and his little brother were there. They had been there off and on most of the day. I don't know what his little brother's name is. This is only the third time I ever saw him. He has a nickname. I don't remember what it is, but it starts with an M. So at about 11.45 p.m., Youngster and his little brother left. Youngster told me he had to go to the store. Uh, when he left, I was in Eva's bed in her bedroom. I had on a white T-shirt and brown shorts, but I was dozing off. Eva was on the couch uh, in the living room watching TV. I went to sleep after they left. The next thing I know, it was about 1 a.m., and Youngster woke me up. He told me that Eva had told him that he had to leave because her daughter was coming home. He said he was waiting for a ride, and he wanted me to stay up until his ride got there. His little brother was with him. 
we talked for a little while, but I kept falling asleep, and he kept waking me up. Finally, I went to sleep while he was still there. The next thing I remember was the next morning at about um, 8.20 a.m. or so, youngster woke me up and told me my pager was going off. Uh, he gave my pager to me. I looked at it and saw that the page was from 615-8825. I know that that number is to a black man named Craig Peters. Craig is a friend of my family, but he mostly talks to my mother. And when I saw he was paging me, I just laid back down and went to sleep. At about 8.45 a.m., my pager went off again, and it was Craig again. So I figured he wanted to talk to my mother, so I decided to go call him. I got up and washed my face and brushed my teeth. Youngster was asleep on the bed. Uh, his little brother was asleep on the floor, and Eva was asleep on the couch. I left to go use the phone. Um, as I walked down the stairs, I saw the lady who lives downstairs from Eva. She's this um, elderly Hispanic woman. She was outside standing near her back fence. It looked like she was doing something to her plants. I said, good morning. She answered, good morning, back to me. I walked over to Janet Dorsey's apartment to use the phone. She lives in apartment three, and she has the only phone I know about. <laughs> I knocked and just walked on in. I always knock and walk in because she's like my second mother. Janet was laying on the bed. She asked who it was, and I told her, and I told her I came to use the phone. And then I called Craig. He has caller ID, and he asked me where I was at, and I told him. We talked for about five minutes. He told me he was supposed to cook dinner for my mother and my grandmother. Um, then we talked a few minutes about the problems I was having with my mother. Um, and then he told me he had to get off the phone for a minute, but that he would call me right back. So I just sat there in a chair while I was waiting for him to call back. Oh, but I, I called the telephone company to talk to them about Eva's phone. It was an 800 number, and I got a recording telling me that all the operators were busy. Uh, while I was waiting for an operator, Craig clicked in. I switched over and talked to Craig again. We talked for a while. You know, he is kind of like my wannabe daddy. <laughs> then I hung up and told Janet I was going, and I left. I walked back towards Eva's apartment. Um, as I walked up, I saw Eva on the step at the bottom to the steps in the front of her apartment. She was talking to the elderly Hispanic lady who lives downstairs from her. And she was acting scared, and she was saying, are you okay? I couldn't see the lady, but someone was answering Eva from inside the apartment. The person was saying, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I just fell and hit my head. Eva asked her if she wanted her to go call the police, and the voice answered back, no, 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 I'm okay. I just hit my head. You know, the voice didn't sound right. I mean, you could tell it was an imitation. It was obvious that it was somebody trying to imitate an elderly woman. The high-pitched voice, but it was it was husky and rough and ragged. It sounded like someone with a low voice talking in a high voice. Eva told me that she knows her neighbor and that the voice did not sound like hers. And I heard her say good morning, and the voice I was hearing was way different from the voice I had heard from the woman earlier. Eva told me that something was wrong, and I agreed and told her to call the police. So Eva ran around to the office to call the police. I ran to the front door, which is under the stairs. I, I was still talking to the voice when Eva left. 
I wasn't sure what was happening, but I started knocking on the door and was hollering that the police was on their way and for her to just let me in. The voice answered again that she was okay and she just hit her head, but I kept knocking and shaking the door and told her I wanted to come in and see if she was okay. At that point, she just stopped answering me. This made me start knocking on the door more, trying to get in. About that time, a black male I know as Red Rock came around the corner. He was with another black male that I don't know. Um, Red Rock lives in the project, and he's always asking people for money. He said, where's the Mexican that stays upstairs? I figured he was talking about Eva because she is half Mexican. I told him Eva was asleep and for him to go home. Now, I know for sure he smokes dope, and I don't like him. I try to dodge him every time I see him. When I told him to go, he started asking me what was wrong and where was Eva and what was I doing. I just told him to go home. Then Red Rock and his friend left. Then Eva came back. She told me that she had told the apartment manager to call the police. She said they acted like they didn't know what was going on, and it took her a while to get them to call. I was standing at the front of the steps with Eva when either the blonde-haired manager or the maintenance man came. Uh, The maintenance man had jumped over the Hispanic lady's patio fence. I could hear the phone ringing inside the lady's apartment. Then the red-haired lady manager came up. I lifted myself up on the patio fence, and I could see the lady laying on the floor in front of her front door. Then the blonde-haired lady says, see if she's alive. I decided to go and check on her. I went over the fence. (laughs) I saw that the patio screen was laying in the middle of the lady's patio area, and I walked in the back door and up to the lady. I could see there was a broken orange, red-looking flower pot. There was dirt in front of the lady. Um, I saw a piece of the broken pot laying on her shoulder near her neck. I think she was on her side. I moved the piece of broken pot away from her neck so I could check her pulse. There was blood everywhere, and I couldn't feel a pulse, so I started to get real nervous because there was just way too much blood for me. I got up, and I left. I went back over the patio fence. When I got over the fence, I saw a youngster. He uh, told me that an ambulance was on the way. He looked like he had just got up to me. (laughs) Eva told him to go back in the house because she had been complained on before to the management for having too much traffic in and out of her apartment. I went around to the front door, and both of the managers had gone in the front door with the maintenance man. Eva was standing at the front door. Um, I went in. I told them to cover her up. Um, the one with the blonde hair covered her up with a bed sheet that she got off of a bed in the apartment. I saw the woman's purse on the floor by her leg. It was closed. It was leaning against the wall, sort of. I mean, somebody had kicked it while I was there. That's what made me notice it. I picked it up and I put it in a chair at the table. Someone had gone to get a nurse who lives in apartment 127. She came in and did CPR on the woman. The blonde-haired manager said that the woman did have a pulse. Uh, After I put the purse in the chair, I went outside. I didn't see them do CPR, but I heard the blonde-haired manager tell the police about it later. I also heard Eva tell the police that she was asleep and that she heard someone screaming, help, and that woke her up. This is why she was outside trying to talk to the lady when I came back from calling Craig. 
When I left Eva's apartment to call Craig, the Hispanic lady was by herself. And the only other person I saw was a white male getting in his truck. He didn't come out of our apartments. He had come off the side of the street that people park on when they live in Sable apartments. Sable apartments are across the street from our apartments. He looked like he was just normal, not in a hurry or nervous. It was a pickup truck. I don't remember what color it was. And he drove off normally. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In Jennifer's first written statement, she says that when she returned from making her phone call, Eva was outside and asking Catalina if she was okay. Jennifer says that she was there and she heard a, quote, husky, rough, and ragged voice calling out, imitating an elderly woman. Then in this statement, we're introduced to two new characters. Red Rock and another black male who happened to be coming by looking for Eva at the exact moment that Jennifer is supposedly knocking on Catalina's door asking if she's okay. Missing from the statement are KD and Youngster. Both of them, along with Eva, say that they were outside when Eva heard the voice coming from Catalina's apartment, but in Jennifer's version, they're absent from the story at this point. Jennifer then says that she jumped the patio fence and followed the maintenance man into the apartment to try to help. Now, according to Eva's written statement, Jennifer told her that she had went in to check on Catalina before Eva's return with the maintenance man. When reading through and trying to analyze the statement, it gets very difficult to separate fact from fiction. Or maybe it's all fiction. But one thing that I notice here is that Jennifer says she hops the fence to get into the apartment and then hopped the fence again to exit. I'm nearly certain that Jennifer did not jump the fence after the maintenance man went in. All other accounts of the incident are that he went in and went straight to the door and opened it for the manager who was waiting outside. Jennifer did enter the apartment at that time, but she came in through the front door behind the manager, or at least that's what the manager says. But there is, however, a consistency here that grabs my attention. So Eva told police that Jennifer told her in the first seconds when Eva returned to the scene that Jennifer had jumped the fence to check on Catalina and exited the same way. I think that if there is any truth to Jennifer jumping the fence and entering the apartment, it would have happened before the maintenance man got there. There's just no reason for Eva to make that detail up about Jennifer telling that, whether she's just trying to tell the truth or if she's trying to incriminate her. Moving on, we have another detail that can be confirmed. Jennifer says that she told the manager to cover Catalina up and that she did exactly that covering the body with a bedspread. And as I mentioned earlier, the manager does confirm that she did hear someone tell her to cover up Catalina's body. 
but that's about all that really can be verified from this statement. Most of it is just nonsense and doesn't fit with the statements that everyone else is giving, which becomes even more complicated because we don't know if those statements are true. So this is not something that can be verified. We don't know whether to believe Jennifer or Eva or Youngster or KD. But in this statement, Youngster and KD are finally introduced. But in Jennifer's story, they don't come out of Eva's apartment until after Eva had returned with the help. She makes a point to say that Youngster looked as though he had just woken up. As a whole, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to determine that the overwhelming majority of this statement is just simply not true. I mean, Jennifer even admits to that. But there is one element of the statement that has my hackles up. Two elements, actually. I'm going to put a pin in them for right now, but I am very curious why Red Rock and his friend were included in the narrative. And I'm equally as curious about why Youngster and KD were excluded until after the help arrived. For now, we'll move on. After signing this first statement, Jennifer rode back home with her mother. We heard Jackie explain last week that Detective Allen stopped by her apartment that night and looked around for evidence. Here in his report, Allen breaks down his Tuesday night activities. And they actually include him talking to Jennifer between her first statement and her interview with him the next day. From the report, quote, Tuesday night, October 29th, 1996. Allen learned that there were inconsistent statements made by the witnesses at the homicide office. There were two witnesses that left the scene prior to investigators having an opportunity to speak with them. They are Jennifer Jeffley's boyfriend, Youngster, and his brother. We are hoping they can clear up some of the discrepancies and provide additional information surrounding the events that occurred at the time of the murder. We know that Eva Mondragon alibis both Youngster and his brother as being with her in her apartment at the time the screams are first heard. We are particularly interested in what the two may have witnessed when Eva Mondragon ran for help and they were left standing on the stairs outside the complainant's apartment. We returned to the apartment complex in an effort to locate the two witnesses. We went to Jennifer Jeffley's apartment and spoke with her mother, Jackie Jeffley. Jackie advised that Jennifer was not there. We briefly explained the nature of our visit. We asked for her cooperation in locating Jennifer's boyfriend, Youngster. We learned that the family is from Jefferson, Texas, and that Mrs. Jeffley's son had been murdered there in Jefferson. Miss Jeffley told investigators that Jennifer may be at Eva's apartment. She wasn't sure. We left and started walking in the direction of Eva Mondragon's apartment. We ran into Jennifer Jeffley. We asked her if she knew where Youngster was. Jeffley stated he is in the parking lot and pointed to the south. We asked her to point Youngster out, and she hesitated. Jennifer reluctantly walked along behind us as we walked in the direction she pointed. We saw an unknown black male walking from around the apartment building. Jennifer called out to him and asked him where Youngster was. The male kept walking. We learned Youngster had just left in a white car. Swainson spoke with a male who identified himself as Terrell. Allen spoke briefly with Jennifer Jeffley and asked her to tell this sergeant what had happened this morning. Jennifer stated she saw Eva outside of the woman's door. Jeffley heard someone answering back, and it did not sound like the elderly woman. Eva ran to get help. Jeffley beat on the door to try and get the woman to answer. A person named Red Rock came along, and she ran him away because he bothers people. Jeffley stated Eva came back with the maintenance man and the manager. The maintenance man went inside, and she followed him in and checked on the woman. Jeffley stated there was a piece of broken pot on the woman's neck, and she moved it to check her pulse. Jeffley stated she did not feel a pulse and there was blood everywhere. 
Jeff Lee left the apartment back over the fence. Allen asked Jeff Lee how she cut her hand. Jeff Lee has a superficial type cut on the inside of the right palm and a minor cut on the back of the hand near her thumb. Jeff Lee stated she was not sure. Jeff Lee stated she did not notice the cut until she was washing her hands in Eva's apartment because she felt it stinging. Jeff Lee stated she had dirt on her hands and was washing the dirt off when she discovered the cut. Allen asked Jeff Lee what she was wearing at the time she went inside the apartment. Jeff Lee was wearing a black t-shirt when she went downtown to give a statement and is now wearing a red shirt and jeans. Jeff Lee stated she was wearing a white t-shirt and brown shorts. We walked over to Eva Mondragon's apartment, and Jeff Lee attempted to locate the clothing described with negative results. There was a large pile of dirty clothes on the floor in the bedroom and bathroom. Jeff Lee changed her mind and believed she may have been wearing the white t-shirt and white shorts. Jeff Lee stated the officer told her she needed to give a statement, and she had changed clothes before going to the police station. There was a white t-shirt and white shorts in the dirty clothes along with assorted clothing. There was no blood observed on any clothing there. Detective Allen eventually left the scene and Jennifer returned to her mother's apartment. According to Jackie, she stayed up late into the night speaking with her grandmother. So at this point, she's given two oral statements at the scene. She went to the police station and gave a written statement there, came back home, and then gave another oral statement to Detective Allen at the apartment complex. It was the next morning when Allen, along with Detective Swainson, returned to the apartments looking for Katie and Youngster. We talked about this last week. Swainson speaks with Jennifer in the morning, and eventually he locates the boys and goes to their house and interviews them. At around 2.30 p.m., he arrives back at the Jeffleys' apartment, and he has KD in the car. This is when Detective Swainson puts Jennifer in the backseat of his squad car, along with KD, who was already in the car, and drove away as Jennifer's grandmother went inside to get her keys. We're going to pick this story up with Detective Allen's report. We're going to pick the report up just after Swainson arrives at the station and turns Jennifer over to him. From the report. Allen reintroduced himself to Jennifer and advised her that I wanted to go over her statement with her that she had given yesterday. Jennifer smiled and stated she understood. Allen advised Jennifer that her statement was not consistent with the statements made by anyone else that had been interviewed. Allen advised Jennifer that we are trying to reconstruct the events that occurred in an effort to ascertain what had happened and what each person had actually witnessed or heard independent of one another. Jennifer stated that her statement was the truth and it happened just like she said. Allen asked Jennifer to tell this sergeant what had happened Tuesday morning. Jennifer began with indicating that she got a page sometime around 8.20 a.m. Youngster had brought her pager to her and Youngster laid on the bed. Jennifer got a second page, and it was from Craig Peters, a family friend. Jennifer stated she recognized Craig's pager number, 734-6955. Jennifer stated she got up and washed her face and brushed her teeth. Jennifer stated that she saw Eva on the couch in the living room as she left the apartment. Jennifer stated she walked down the stairs and saw the elderly female that lives in the apartment below doing something with pot plants on her patio. Jennifer said good morning to the woman, and she told her good morning back. Jennifer stated that she went over to Janet's apartment, apartment number three, located at the front of the complex. Jennifer called Craig and spoke with him. Jennifer stated Craig has caller ID and we could check this out. Jennifer stated she had shown the officers her pager yesterday with Craig's number in it. Jennifer stated Craig talked with her about her situation at home and told her she should go back home. Jennifer was staying at Eva's apartment because her mother and her had a problem over the rules at her mother's. 
Jennifer stated she called the telephone company to speak with them in an effort to try to get the telephone turned on in her name. Jennifer stated she left Janet's and as she was walking up, saw Eva at the foot of the stairs talking in the direction of the elderly female's apartment. Jennifer stated she could hear a voice inside saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, and it sounded like someone trying to pretend to be the woman. Eva said something's not right, I know my neighbor. Jennifer stated that Eva ran to the office for help. Jennifer stated that a person she knows as Red Rock and another black male came by. Jennifer stated she was knocking on the woman's door under the stairs. Jennifer stated Red Rock wanted to know where Eva was. Jennifer stated she did not like Red Rock and told him to go away. Jennifer stated Eva came back. Shortly, the maintenance man came and the managers. Jennifer stated that she went over the patio fence and saw the maintenance man looking for the telephone. Jennifer stated he did not go straight to the woman and she went over to the woman and checked her pulse. Jennifer stated there was a piece of a ceramic pot on the woman's neck and she picked it up off her neck and felt for a pulse. Jennifer stated she did not feel one, and because there was so much blood all around, she went out to the patio and back over the fence. I know this is a long report, and trust me, I don't want to be reading it to you any more than you want me to be reading it to you. But this is the best way for me to relay all this information without leaving anything out. So, at this point, where we stand now, Jennifer's statement, for the most part, matches up with a written statement from the day before. Then Alan's report continues. Alan pointed out to Jennifer that the maintenance man's statement and Eva's statement do not indicate that she went inside with the maintenance man. Jennifer stated, Eva saw me go over the fence. Alan advised Jennifer that that's not what her statement says. Alan pointed out the discrepancies in her statement versus Eva, the maintenance man, and including Youngster. Jennifer stated she did not see Youngster until later when he told her an ambulance was coming. Alan advised Jennifer that that was not what he was saying. Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told investigators that she was not present when she was first talking with the elderly female and that she had whispered to Eva to tell the police she was. Jennifer stated that she and Eva were talking when she was washing her hands in the apartment. Eva told her that their statements had to coincide and for her to stick to her statement and not let the police trick her or turn things around. Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told officers she wanted to know what Eva was telling investigators at the police station. Jennifer stated, okay, I'll tell you the truth, and she started her story again from getting up and brushing her teeth. Alan advised Jennifer to start with when Eva was on the stairs outside of the apartment. Jennifer repeated the same version, only with a minor change. Jennifer stated she had arrived when Eva was going to get help, and Eva told her what was going on. Jennifer stated she went over the fence to check on the woman before the maintenance man had gotten there, and when she came out, she told Eva she had cut her hand. Eva wanted to know if she had touched anything. At trial, in the transcripts that we discussed last week, Detective Allen stated that Jennifer's second story just didn't make sense. The second statement just didn't make any sense at the time. I told her I could determine she wasn't being honest, and that it just didn't make any sense, that the sequence didn't make any sense as she described it. On the stand, Allen simply stated that Jennifer's second statement reconciled Eva and the maintenance man's statement, but that the sequence of events didn't make sense. But that's not really true. In fact, based on what I've read so far, I think that maybe this second statement is likely the closest thing we have to the truth. Remember what I told you earlier. In Eva's written statement, 
She said that when she returned from the manager's office, Jennifer was there and told her that she had jumped over the fence and went inside and checked on the woman. And that's exactly what she's saying here. As I'm reading through all of this, I think that this moment right here was the moment where things really went south. Jennifer first tells police a lie in her first statement. She alleges that Eva told her to tell that version of the story, and maybe that's true or maybe it's not, but either way, it was a lie. In this interview, Detective Allen calls her on that lie, and Jennifer says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. And honestly, when you look at the statements from everyone else, it looks like she might have done exactly that. But Allen refuses to accept what she's telling him is true. The scenario reminds me a lot of Jason Baldwin retelling his story of being interrogated by the West Memphis Police Department. In season five, we heard him say that they kept asking for the truth. He would tell them the truth and they would refuse to accept it. The detectives didn't actually want him to tell the truth. They wanted him to tell the story that they had created. Now in Jason's case, he never faltered. Jennifer, on the other hand, who was younger than Baldwin, and had zero experience dealing with the police at this point, asked to go to the bathroom to wash her face. And no doubt, take a few minutes to figure out what she needs to say next to put a stop to this. From here on out, the stories just get crazier and crazier. Form your own opinion. But to me, it seems pretty obvious that at this point, Jennifer is trying like hell to construct some sort of narrative that fits with all of the information that Alan is providing to her. Every item that he asks her about, she then works into her story. Have a listen. Back to the report. Alan advised Jennifer that this version was not truthful either. Alan told Jennifer that Youngster was on the stairs with Eva when she went to get help, and he had not seen her. Jennifer stated she really did not go over the fence into the apartment. Jennifer stated that she had gone in through the front door with Eva and that was when she checked the woman's pulse and took the piece of ceramic off her neck. Jennifer stated she saw the woman's purse by her body next to the wall. Jennifer stated she picked it up and carried it over to the dining room and put the purse on a chair. Jennifer stated the manager told them to get out, and she told the manager to cover the woman up. Jennifer stated that Eva had told her to say that she had gone over the fence and for them to keep their stories the same. Jennifer stated that when she and Eva had gone into the apartment, they saw the purse laying next to the woman. Jennifer stated Eva started whispering to her, get the purse, get the purse. Jennifer stated she picked up the purse and carried it over to the chair. Alan asked Jennifer if they had taken anything from the purse or had gone into the purse for any reason because I had the contents removed to be processed for fingerprints. Jennifer stated she had placed a black book into the purse. Alan asked if the black book could have been a checkbook and Jennifer replied it could be. Alan asked Jennifer if she had ever gone into the kitchen while in the apartment. Jennifer stated, I forgot to tell you about that. Jennifer stated she had gone into the kitchen and she went into kitchen drawer to get a pen. Jennifer stated that Eva had told her that the police was going to question them and she wanted to start writing down what had happened. Jennifer stated she saw some knives in the drawer and she had picked up a piece of plastic to look for the pen and put it back down. This last bit of her story is very important to us for a statement analysis. The part where Jennifer says that after checking Catalina for a pulse and touching her bloody neck, 
She then goes into the kitchen and picks up a piece of plastic to look for a pen and puts it back down. The reason this is important is because what I'm trying to do is source all the information from the statement. It's a difficult task without a recording, but there are a few tricks to the trade and this is one of them. In cases like this, where it seems like everyone is lying, including the detective, I try to look for mistakes that investigators made early on and see if they appear in witness or suspect statements something only the police officer would know about. A great example of this was in our season three case. We have police reports that state Jesse Eldridge's mom told police that Jesse told her that he had stolen Kiao Gove's necklace when he murdered her. But what we discovered through our investigation was that that very same detective had wrote into a report on the day of the murder that Mrs. Gove's necklace was stolen. But in another officer's later report, we find out that that was a mistake. It wasn't stolen. It was in the possession of her husband the entire time. Things like this are important because they expose corruption. It gives you an idea of how the police are operating. The statement about the necklace was intended to demonstrate that Jesse was guilty because only the killer would know that the necklace was stolen. Except we know it wasn't stolen. Kiao wasn't even wearing it when she was killed and therefore the killer wouldn't even know it existed. So the only person who actually had the false knowledge that it was stolen was the detective himself. And therefore, he was the only one who could have inserted that element into the statement. And we have a similar situation here with Detective Allen. As our investigation continues, we're going to be dissecting the crime scene. But it's important to point out right now an early mistake investigators made. There was a piece of clear plastic in the kitchen at the crime scene. According to trial testimony, at the point when this statement was taken from Jennifer, police believed that there was a blood smear on the plastic. Later on in the investigation, testing revealed that it wasn't blood at all. The red spot on the plastic noted by investigators was actually paint, not blood. So we have a Jesse Eldridge situation here all over again. The way Detective Allen is documenting this, it looks like Jennifer is building a narrative that Allen believes is matching up perfectly to the evidence at the crime scene, indicating she has guilty knowledge of the crime. She knows why there was blood on the plastic, because she touched Catalina's bloody neck and then touched the plastic. It makes perfect sense, except it doesn't. Since we now know there was no blood on the plastic, We also know that the only person in that room who thought that there was blood on the plastic was Detective Allen. So we can conclude that anything we hear from this point forward is not Jennifer's truth. That doesn't necessarily mean Jennifer is innocent, but these statements are not Jennifer's truth. Allen is manipulating her into giving a version of events that he thinks matches the evidence. And now back to the report. Alan told Jennifer that her statement was not believable. While I was trying to give her the benefit of the doubt, her statement did not make any sense. Alan advised Jennifer that we could get her mother up to the office along with Eva and the maintenance man to see if we could straighten this out. Alan asked Jennifer if she realized that this is a capital murder case and it appeared she is hiding something or is she just adding information to her statement to get attention. 
Alan asked Jennifer if she was protecting someone or scared that someone would harm her if she told the truth. Jennifer stated that she would tell the truth, but could she wash her face first? Alan showed Jennifer where the ladies' room was located, and we returned to the interview room. Alan asked Jennifer if she knew who killed this woman. Jennifer stated that Eva was mad at the woman downstairs and wanted to get someone to rough her up. Jennifer stated that Eva knew this guy named Frank, and he was supposed to come over and rough the woman up, but it was not supposed to happen like it did. Jennifer describes Frank. Jennifer started with getting up that morning again, calling Craig, and when she came back to the apartment, she saw Eva coming over the fence. Jennifer stated she heard the woman scream and saw Frank run from the apartment. Alan stopped Jennifer at that time and told her, You know that's not true. Youngster was there, and he did not see Eva go over the fence. Jennifer admitted that did not happen. Jennifer stated that she just said that because Eva told police she asked her to lie. Alan asked Jennifer if she would like something to drink, and she asked for a Sprite. Alan provided Jennifer with a Sprite, and Alan drank a Diet Coke. Alan split a Reese's peanut butter cup with Jennifer. We began again. Jennifer stated again, okay, I'll tell you the truth, and told Alan that she had not told the truth. Like you said, I was afraid someone would hurt my family. And this is when Jennifer began telling the story that landed her in prison for the rest of her life. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Last week, we learned that after three hours of interrogation, Jennifer finally began telling the story that caused her to become a suspect. She was then given her magistrate warnings. On the return trip to the police station, Detective Allen bought her a burger from Burger King, and they settled in at his desk so that he could type out her statement as she verbalized it. This is when Jennifer's mom called, and Jennifer overheard Detective Allen tell her that they need to finish up her statement, and then he would bring her home. The statement that you're about to hear is 13 minutes and 26 seconds long. That's how long it takes to speak these words. According to Detective Allen's testimony and the police reports, it took two hours to type them. I am at the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division giving a statement to Sergeant Allen regarding a murder. I presently live with my mother, Jackie Jeffley, at 10601 Sable, number 135. I'm 15 years old and was born on September 2nd, 1981, in Jefferson, Texas. Uh, I'm in eighth grade and I've been attending Beverly Hills Intermediate. Um, recently, I had a disagreement with my mother and I went over to another girl's apartment uh, in the complex to stay. The girl is named Eva Mondragon, and she lives in apartment 58. Um, Eva's apartment is above the apartment where uh, the woman was killed yesterday. I spoke with Sergeant Allen's partner, Officer Swainson, and the other officers yesterday also, 
And I made a written statement at that time. Um, the first statement that I gave was not the truth. I did not tell the truth because I was afraid that the other people involved in the murder would harm me or my family. I believe this past Sunday night, a person that I know as Ernest Swatson came over to Eva's apartment. Um, another male known as um, Slow was with Ernest. Um, there were some other males, but I do not know their names. They all um, hang around the southwest side of town at the Sandpiper Apartments. Um, I know Ernest because I had met him earlier this year at the Regency Walk Apartments um, across from the Sandpiper Apartments, and people call Ernest E. While at the apartment, Ernst asked me about a white Honda that was parked outside by Eva's apartment. Ernest had parked by the Honda, and he said that car's tight. <laughs> that means it looked good. Ernest asked me who the car belonged to because it was parked in a handicapped spot. I told Ernest that I believe it belonged to the woman that stays underneath us. Ernest said, what's up on getting a car? And Tim said, they know a chop shot by Golfate. They both asked me if I was down. That means if I was with helping them get the car. I said, it's whatever. It don't matter to me. We picked our role in the theft of the car. They told me I would be lookout. Ernest and Tim said they would handle it. Ernest said after they got into her apartment, Ernest was going to tie her up. I asked Ernest why he did not just steal the car out of the parking lot later that night. Ernest said as long as I kept lookout, I would not have to do anything else, and he would kick me down. Um, kick me down means he would look out for me and give me some of the money. <laughs> Tim checked to see if the car had an alarm. Um, Tim said the car did not have an alarm. They uh, said they would come and take the car Monday night, but they didn't show. I thought they were going to take the car at night. On Tuesday morning, I woke up because my pager kept going off. My pager number is 615-9585. I recognized the number. It was 615-8825. The number is for a friend of my family's. His name is Greg Peters. I got up, washed my face, and brushed my teeth. I had to go to another friend's to use the telephone. Eva's phone had been turned off. Um, Eva was sleeping on the couch. We had company, a, a friend I know as Youngster and his brother. Youngster's brother was sleeping on the floor. Youngster was in the bed. Youngster's first name is Farrell. I've only known him a short time. I walked out of the apartment, and as I was walking down the steps, I saw the downstairs neighbor out on her patio. This is the woman that was killed. It looked like she was doing something with some pot plants. I said good morning, and she responded good morning back. I walked towards the driveway in the direction of the office, and walked to apartment three. A friend of mine named Janet Dorsey lives there. Janet's phone number is 941-5863. I called Craig, and we talked for about five minutes. Craig told me he had to call me back. I called the phone company regarding Eva's telephone, and while I was waiting, Craig clicked in. We spoke again several minutes. Um, Craig gave me advice about my personal situation. I told Janet I was gone and started back to Eva's apartment. As I hit the corner of the building where I was staying, I ran into Ernest and Tim. 
They asked if the lady was at home. I told them yeah because I had seen her earlier. Ernest told me to go and knock on her front door. I went to knock on the front door and Ernest and Tim were by the steps. I knocked on the door and she responded, who is it? I said, it's your neighbor from upstairs. The woman said, what do you want? I was trying to think of something to say when a person I know in the complex called Red Rock came around the corner. Red Rock asked me about the Mexican that stayed upstairs. I said, who, Eva? He said, yeah, that's her name. I told him she was asleep. I told him to go on. Red Rock kept asking me questions, and I told him to just go on. Red Rock had some other dude with him, and they walked off. Then I looked and saw Ernest and Tim in the bushes that are on the other side of the woman's patio. I told them she was at home. Ernest said, let's do it. Ernest went over to the steps and went over the wooden fence. Tim went over the fence from the flower bed next to the woman's bedroom. There's a little metal pole there. I stepped on this pole, and Tim helped me over the fence. I started my lookout job. Tim took the screen off and laid it on the ground. The woman came to her patio door, and I heard her say, What are you doing? What's going on? I heard the glass patio door slide open. Um, the woman started screaming. Ernest, uh, forced the woman back from the door and she started saying, help, help. Tim went in behind Ernest. The woman was still screaming and I went inside. I told them to get the keys and hurry up. Tim went to the dining room table. Ernest had the woman over by the front door. Ernest was telling her to shut up. She said okay, but started screaming again. Ernest hit her in the head with a white object. I saw the object shatter when Ernest hit her. I saw the woman fall to the floor by the front door. I told them it was not supposed to go down like that. I said, don't hurt her. They were only supposed to tie her up and get the keys. Tim told me to go and get her purse. I looked through a purse that was on the table and said, her car keys are not here. I went into the bedroom and saw another purse on the bed. I think this purse was black. I grabbed the purse and recognized a car key on the keychain. There was an H on one of the keys that was black. I gave the keys to Tim. Tim put the keys in his pocket. The woman continued to scream. She was beating up against the door. Ernest hit the woman again with the flower pot. The woman stopped screaming, and I told Ernest he had killed her. I went over to where she was laying. She was barely breathing. I repeated it was not supposed to go down like this. No one was supposed to get hurt. I bent over and checked the woman's pulse. I could not feel one. She was barely breathing. Ernest was still standing there. Tim had gone into the kitchen. I walked around to the side entrance. Tim was standing by the refrigerator. I was getting frantic, and I said, We need to go. We need to burn now. Tim had walked around me and pointed down to a kitchen drawer that was partially open. I looked at the drawer and pulled it open the rest of the way. Tim told me to hand him a knife. I saw some knives under a piece of plastic. I pulled the knife up and Tim said, damn, come on, and he grabbed another one. The knife was a large butcher knife. Tim walked over to Ernest and gave him the knife. I walked around to the edge of the counter, and I saw Ernest stab the woman several times. I then heard a woman's voice outside say, Are you okay? I recognized the voice as Eva's. 
Ernest started talking back to her. Ernest tried to sound like a woman. Ernest told Eva, I'm okay, I just fell and hit my head. Eva kept asking, are you okay? Ernest said again, yeah. I heard Eva say, uh, do you want me to go and get help? Ernest said, no. I heard Eva say, I'm fixing to go and get the manager. I said, let's go, man. Let, let's burn. The three of us went to the patio door and went over the fence. I do not know what Ernest did with the knife. One of them said, we'll have to come back and get the car later. I stood outside of the apartment and Eva came back. I asked Eva what happened. Eva told me something was wrong with the neighbor. The maintenance man and shortly the managers came to the apartment. The maintenance man uh, jumped the fence and went inside. The maintenance man opened the door and the manager went inside. The manager I saw that went in first was blonde-haired. Another manager that was redheaded came over and went in, I believe. I told Eva, let's go see. I was trying to play my role, was play it off. I was acting like I did not know what was going on. I also wanted a chance to look at the woman again. I walked in and Eva stood at the door. I told them to cover her up. They told us to get out. I went outside and sat on the steps. Uh, we went upstairs. I washed my hands because I saw blood on my hands where I had touched the woman. Then I saw I had a small cut from the burning sensation from the soap. Eva asked me what had happened. I told her that I had jumped over the fence to check on the woman. Eva said, we got to make our stories match so I know what to tell them. I did not tell Eva what had really happened. Eva told me she had talked to the woman and I told her to tell the police I was with her outside when she was talking. Eva said, tell them you got the cut when you jumped over the fence. Eva said, I'll tell them I saw you and you were freaking. Eva said stories have to match. When I had gone into the woman's apartment, I was wearing a white t-shirt, white shorts, and a pair of white house shoes. This stuff is still at Eva's apartment. Ernest Watson is a black male, about 19 years old. Ernest has bright skin, light brown eyes, low-cut fade haircut, mustache, goatee, and is kind of chubby. Ernest is about the same height as Sergeant Allen, so 5'10". Ernest was wearing all black at the time of the murder. A black t-shirt, black jeans, and black athletic shoes. Ernest also had on a pair of black gloves. Tim is a black male, about 18 years old. Tim is dark-complected, um, tall, and he has a slim build. Tim's hair is a low-cut fade, a mustache, a goatee, and he has four golds across the top front four teeth. There's some kind of initials in them, but I don't know what they are. Tim was wearing a red polo shirt, black jeans, and red and white Converse athletic sneakers. Tim was also wearing a pair of latex gloves at the time. They both hang out in the southwest side uh, in the vicinity of the Sandpiper Apartments. Ernest has a late model two-door white Nissan Sentra, uh, and this is the car the two of them were in on Tuesday morning. Ernest has a pager. Uh, the number is 759-8052. Ernest's mother lives somewhere on Cullen.
I saw Ernest again uh, after the murder at the Green Arbor Apartments on Tuesday night. Ernest had shaved off his goatee. Ernest said he did this in case someone saw him leave. Ernest asked me what I told the police, and I told him nothing. I gave Ernest my pager number, and Ernest asked me what happened to the car. I told him it got towed. Ernest said, I'll hit you later, meaning call me. The statement is the truth. I was not mistreated or promised anything to give the statement. I have been provided with something to drink and eat and allowed to use the restroom when requested. A week ago in our follow-up episode with Janet Varney, she asked me if I believed that the police narrowed in on Jennifer because they were determined to get swift justice for Catalina. The real answer to that question can be easily answered just by looking at what the police did after Jennifer signed this statement. This case is officially closed. Marked as solved by Houston PD. Jennifer confessed that she was in the room when two men, who she names, murdered Catalina. No one else was ever arrested or tried for this crime. 15-year-old Jennifer was sent to prison for the rest of her life, and the case was closed. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Eden Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. 
M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.